Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. This episode is landing earlier than normal because there's a lot going on at an extraordinary pace in Westminster, and we're going to try and have a go at least at making sense of it. It's Thursday, the 7th of December from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. This is a partnership to which we and Rwanda are both completely committed. The immigration minister, Robert Jenrick, has resigned. Where does this leave Rishi Sunak? This is an absolute crisis. Every time it looks like it can't get more apocalyptic in Gaza, it does. Republican senators blocked a White House request for more than $100 billion in emergency aid, primarily for Ukraine and Israel. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. I look at all this stuff in which we seem so oblivious with, that, with, with horror now. I mean, we, we, we should, have, we should have, have twigged. Tortoise, as you might have guessed, is a slow newsroom, which means we try and take a step back from the churn of the daily news cycle, try and take time to figure out what really matters. In other words, to cut through the noise. And then there are weeks like this one where you've just got to give into it. When you can't ignore the roar of the chaos of the news bulletins, you're glued to your phones as those notifications pour in, and you're just trying to keep up. I can't say I've succeeded, but I'm trying. Rishi Sunak seems to be in the midst of a political storm of his own making over the Rwanda policy. His immigration minister has quit, and he's now joined Suella Braverman in calling for a tougher approach from the government. There are questions in Westminster a confidence vote, perhaps a snap election, perhaps none of those things at all, and just a lot of unnecessary noise on the eve of Christmas. Well, later we're going to be joined from Westminster, fresh from Westminster, I should say. I'm hoping Kat's actually going to make it into the newsroom. Kat Neal and our political editor will join us. But we're going to do one better today because we've actually got an MP too. Uh, Caroline Lucas, uh, long-time leader of the Green Party and a member of Parliament who is stepping down for reasons that are probably clear to all of us now when you look at what's (laughs) happening in the Commons. Caroline, welcome. It's very good to have you. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be here. By the way, what do you say to people when they say that politics doesn't look like a news programme, more like wildlife show? When people just feel as though their politics is out of control and they don't understand the way in which these things seem to blow up so regularly in Westminster, what is it about the culture of politics that makes those things happen? Well, I think we need a better political system and, frankly, better politicians as well while we're at it. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody can look at the way that this government is is running the country at the moment and think that it's any kind of example to be emulated in the future. And so much of it is about who's up, who's down. Uh, big issues are going completely ignored. Um, there aren't clear ways of holding ministers to account. Um, you, you know, it just feels as if there are so many levers that you try to pull, but it actually makes no difference to anything on the other end of it. So I would love to see a, a, a real transformatory overhaul of of governance within within Westminster. You know, we are fond of calling ourselves the mother of all parliaments, but frankly, 
it, we, we are totally dysfunctional. Um, and so, yes, of course, crises come up, but it just feels as if the methods and, and measures that we have to try to deal with those simply aren't fit for purpose. Well, I hope we'll come to that, what you've learned, why you're leaving, what your blueprint, your green print for a different politics would look like. Um, I also just want to welcome Kerry Thomas. Kerry's a fellow editor here at Tortoise, set it up with me when we got started and has just put out this week's slow newscast, Unforgivable, tracking the 43 days in which Boris Johnson delayed locking down for the second time. Is there anything today or yesterday from Boris Johnson's testimony that made you think differently about that account of things? No, funny if it, it re- I mean, I think what I want to talk about today is why actually we should care about character in politics because there's a lot of sort of blowback against the COVID inquiry saying we need more process and less about the people. And I think you just can't look at Boris Johnson without thinking that, that, that his character is so fundamental to the way the COVID crisis was handled in this country that you, you've got one of the lessons of the inquiry has to be we need to elect the right people. And Jess Winch is here too, our news editor. Jess, we're asking you to do everything else in the world. That's the job of the news editor. What else is happening in the in the world? Why don't you start with long story short? What are you pitching? I want to talk about Israel and the attacks by Hamas on Israeli women on October 7th. Yeah, interesting. And why it seems two months later they've suddenly... Exactly. Why now? Why they've been, why people have come aware of them. Caroline, what's the story that you'd want to pitch? I want to pitch good cop, bad cop. Why what happens at COP28 matters for all of us. And why is it that it's kind of flying under the radar now as the media rush to the latest bit of drama from Westminster. Well, you sort of made your point already, haven't you? Because look, the breathless way in which I introduced this whole thing completely ignore the fact yeah. that perhaps the most important meeting is happening <laughs> far, far away from SW1. Um, well, well, why don't we, on that basis, and I'm assuming, Kerry, you're going to do COVID inquiry. Then. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that basis, Caroline, why don't we start with you and COP? They're always, to be honest with you, different, difficult summits to cover. It's hard to know what's really going on, if anything. What's your read on it? Well, I think it really does matter what's happening there now. And I take the point that, you know, for somebody who's going about their their lives in, in the UK, what happens in Dubai in, in extremely complicated UN processes can seem very obscure. But I I do think it's the responsibility of the media in general and frankly of 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 an outlet like Tortoise in particular to really try to to drill down into why that matters. And that's not simply the kind of headlines around the fact that you know, this is the biggest um, annual meeting for the last seven or eight years in terms of evaluating how effectively we are moving to um, reduce our emissions and therefore avoid the worst of catastrophic climate change, which is going to you know, transform the world as we know it and the livability of the planet as we know it. But but also there are some really big questions there that affect people's lives here in the UK very directly. So, for example, the big hope out of this particular global meeting is that we will see an agreement to phase out fossil fuels. And yet what we have is our own prime minister being front and centre of a move to accelerate the extraction of fossil fuels here in the UK. He's given the green light to a new coal mine, the first new coal mine in 30 years. He is giving 100 licences to oil and gas companies in the North Sea. And he's also given the go ahead to the Rosebank oil field. This is the largest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea. And that matters because not only does that really have a big impact in terms of other countries looking at the UK and thinking, well, if the sixth richest economy in the world isn't 
getting its finger out and beginning to phase down fossil fuels, then why should we? But it is also locking ordinary people into incredibly high fuel prices because we know that people's energy prices are high because we are so dependent on costly fossil fuels. So right now, loads of people are really worried about how they're going to manage going through these cold months over Christmas. They're worried about whether or not they can afford to heat their homes as well as put food on the table. And one of the reasons that it's that they are struggling so much is because our, our government, Rishi Sunak, has doubled down on our dependence on fossil fuels. This meeting in Dubai, you know, thousands of miles away, actually will have a real bearing on whether or not the UK does finally begin to kick its dependence on fossil fuels, whether or not we do try to regain some global leadership on this issue, whether we can get people's fuel bills down, whether we can get ourselves off the catastrophic course that we're on right now for for catastrophic climate change, whether we can really deal with things like flooding and all of those big issues that the media focuses on while they're happening and then completely forgets the following day. Carolyn, can I just pick you up on your language? At the beginning, you said people are looking to this COP to phase out fossil fuels. And then you talked about this government not really driving the, the phase down of fossil fuels. And someone was saying to me that in the gap between phase out and phase down, there's a lot of trouble. I phase down. Is, so can you just explain what the difference between those two things are and what yeah. that means for the climate? And, and you have um, wisely identified a, a, a misspeak on my behalf because both of those should have been phase out because you are quite right. There is a world of difference between phasing out and phasing down. There's also, just to make things a little bit more complicated, a big difference between whether or not fossil fuels are abated or unabated. So to try to unpack all of that, what we need to see is an end to the dependence on fossil fuels. We need to see countries move away from fossil fuels, period. In other words, a phase out. What is being discussed in Dubai is whether or not instead of doing that, we might phase them down. In other words, we might reduce our dependence on them a bit. And then this word unabated creeps in, which essentially means that people are hoping that they can carry on burning fossil fuels, but use abatement technologies, in other words, things like carbon capture and storage, mm. trying to capture the emissions associated with burning fossil fuels and bury that under the sea or somewhere else, so that basically they can carry on with business as usual and try and use some kind of technical fix to sort out the emissions. The trouble with that is that nowhere at scale is that kind of technology operating right now. And we know that what matters right now is the number of emissions in the atmosphere now. And we can't just wait for 20 years and then decide we're going to find the technology to sort it out later. Kerry, what do you think of COP? It, just in straight news terms, isn't it quite boring? It's, it's hard going, isn't it? And I think, if I think about it in relation to like European summits that we will all have covered in, you know, when Britain was part of that thing... I think in those things, you had a sense of the sort of tides of shifting you know, through, through the course of a weekend in Brussels or wherever. You'd have a sense of the arguments that were running and where countries were positioning themselves and, and a sense of, you know, where things were heading. Whereas with COP, COP feels more like a black box to me. That actually there's a degree of kind of secrecy around it or you know, countries playing their cards close to their chests that makes it really impenetrable and hard to cover, I think. To be fair, a friend of mine is a member of the Kenyan delegation and goes and says, none of us know what's going to come out of it. So it is a black box. I don't think it's a black box that's, you know, in a conspiratorial or coordinated way. No one quite seems to know exactly what comes out at the end. Jess, are you, I, I'm, and I'm being kind of deliberately uh, unkind to the whole COP process, but as a news story on day whatever it is, 
seven of this thing. It's quite hard to work out how it leads the news because we seem to be between the beginning and the end of it. Well, I'm going to be led by what Jeevan Vazagar, our climate editor, said before he went. I think we'll hear more from him next week. And that is that uh, it might not be a news story every day because a lot of it comes out right at the end. Is the talks that are going on right down to the wire to actually try and come out with something valuable. And I think it's important to follow what is going on at the moment and to be aware of what might lead to an outcome. But I'm I'm not expecting it to be leading the news until a bit later on in the process. And I think that's I think in a way it's a question of managing media expectations. Just because there's not news every that we day. think needs the news every day, that does not mean this isn't a news story worth following. Well, well I want to make sure that we get a decent amount of time for every story. So let's park cop for a moment. I want to come, Jess, if I might, to the story of uh, the rapes of women on October the 7th at, I think, the Supernova Festival, but also those kibbutzes too. Yes. Tell us what we've learned in the last few days and then why we seem to have learned it so long after the event. So what started to come out in the past few days, and in the UK anyway, it really was leading in the media with pieces in the Sunday Times by Christina Lamb, which was on the front page of, um, of the Sunday Times, and it was that on the attacks on October 7th, that there were systematic rapes and sexual attacks on women and some men. Uh, From what I've read, we're talking about victims in the dozens, is what police investigators have told reporters. And there was a, a big meeting at the UN in New York on Monday where survivors and those who had been collecting bodies and collecting forensic evidence gave uh, testimony to the UN. And they described in very graphic detail what had been done, uh, including gang rapes, mutilations, dismemberment, uh, corpses being desecrated, um, women who were passed from one fighter to another, uh, who I'm aware of going into too much details, but you can, you can, you can, you don't want to imagine, but it was very violent and very brutal. And what people are saying now is that, you know, um, Hamas terrorists that were carrying out these attacks were live streaming this as it was going on. So it was pretty, it was it was there from very early on that, that this had happened, that these attacks had happened. And yet it took until, I think, November, mid-November for even police officials in Israel to really start sharing um, evidence and details of what had happened. It took until... November 25th for UN Women, which has come under some criticism for this delay, to respond to what had happened on uh, on X, formerly Twitter. And it feels like it's really been this week that the news media globally has has picked up on this as a as part of the atrocities that happened on October 7th. Caroline, why do you think this has taken so long to come to light? And why is it that campaigners, campaigners against violence against women seem to have been slow too, to address it and speak quite so critically or vocally about it? Well, I think Jess is absolutely right to identify just how how appalling this is and what a big story it is. And I genuinely don't know why it didn't come out earlier. I've had constituents write to me about it over the last few weeks who who have known about it. So, so clearly some people have known, but why it's taken so long to get higher up the news agenda and capture people's attention, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I I hope it's not that we don't care about this stuff, because I think increasingly now people do recognise that rape is 
is, is a war crime and it, and, it, and, it, and it's very, very sadly um, common in conflict situations. So it's something that one would have been alert to, one would have thought. Should, should we not tiptoe around it? Because there are two arguments, aren't there? One is, look, it takes time to prove such things. Yeah. Rapes are different, yeah. different from murders. But there's a different argument, which is that many people who are pro-Palestinian and are sympathetic to the Palestinian cause are have been reluctant to say, well, I can be pro-Palestinian, but also be absolutely clear in my condemnation of rape and the use of violence against women. And I, and I wonder whether or not there is something to that. That is that is the argument that you hear, and, and I'll just give you my own personal experience of it. I was in New York a few weeks ago, and a fair few weeks ago, four or five weeks ago, and there was a student protest walking down the street, and the 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 banner at the very front of this protest was "Reproductive rights equals freedom for Palestine," and what I took from that was that there are a group of people who clearly campaign for the powerless around reproductive rights and Roe v. Wade in the United States and are aligned with powerless or the people they see to be powerless in other places in the world, in this case, the Palestinians. And the basically the blurring of the line between those causes and the narrative of power, i.e. powerless is good and powerful is bad, has meant that people haven't brought the same lens or the same willingness to condemn as they otherwise would. I don't know whether you think that's fair, Caroline. I don't know if I buy that. I I, I totally understand that. That uh, I mean, just from what I was watching on the news in the last couple of days, the the discussion about about how difficult it has been to 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 ha- to, to collect all of the evidence. Yes, you know, there's the, on one level there was the evidence of the of the live streaming, but in terms of, of actually what's what you know people's bodies and so forth. I mean, it's 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 a horrible thing to discuss, but it's been really hard necessarily to, to know what's happened to some of those bodies. And that was being described on the news just the other night. But I just feel the the argument about the fact that if you have sympathy for the for the atrocities that are happening to the Palestinians now, that somehow that means that you underplay what Hamas did, I think is just an example of, of, of binary thinking that I want to, I want to kick back at. Mm. I, I don't think that's the case. And I've got so frustrated when you know, any almost anybody who's been on a on a march in London, it gets called a, a march for Palestine. Whereas a, a, again and again, it feels to me at least, most people marching are marching for peace. Most people marching are not saying that they are underplaying for one second the seriousness and the appallingness of the Hamas mm-hmm. attacks. But it's possible to hold those two realities in your mind at the same time. Mm-hmm. The Hamas attacks were wrong, but certainly what's happening in Palestine right now is deeply, deeply wrong. Yeah, and thought, that's why I would argue for the ceasefire. Yeah, I thought Jonathan Friedan, right right at the beginning, wrote this wonderful phrase about having room in your heart, having room in your heart if you're on one side yeah. for those and the suffering on the other. It's, but, but Jess, what do you think, though? I mean, I don't want to be too delicate about it because I think there are people who feel very strongly that Mm -hmm. agencies that are dedicated to women's rights have fallen short here. Yes, I think they have fallen short here. I also think that no one's ever accused the UN of moving too quickly. (laughs) And so I think that while that's a fair criticism, again, I'm I'm wary of leading too much into then that that binary thinking that, that Caroline described. I think... I think, yes, partly, in some cases, I think it has been caught up in the politics. On the, But I'm, I'm, 
appreciative of the fact that when this happened on October 7th, and remember, we've got two months distant now, but when it happened, it was overwhelming. It was a mass casualty event. And even on the very um, grim level of the fact that forensic investigators were probably just trying to identify bodies at that point, they were not collecting evidence of rape at that point. And it takes time for those kind of details to really, for, for even for even observers to be able to process that that was also happening at the same time. The other thing to bear in mind is that we haven't heard from survivors yet. And that is, a, that is I think, partly why we, this has taken a while to come out, because most of the women this happened to were killed. Some may have been taken hostage and are now being still held in Gaza. And those, if there, are, if there have been survivors, I wouldn't be surprised if they don't ever want to talk about it, because this is that, the, kind of, the kind of atrocity that is hard to talk about. It is the cheapest weapon of war and it is one that gives such a sense of perhaps did I, maybe victims feel they did something wrong. That uh, There's all those other elements attached to it. Kerry, what do you think about the media reporting and the public response? So I think the thing that worries me is that there's a, there's a risk that within some sections of the media, quite, quite probably quite a broad section, the concern about being seen as racist or Islamophobic and ascribing certain things to a to an organisation like Hamas would would override other concerns about re- accurate reporting of rape and sexual crimes in war. So I th- so I think if there's if there's been a kind of a willingness to look away from some of the, some of these atrocities that happened, I can see from places I've worked in the past how you how people would get to that point because of those because of those worries about falling into stereotypes or, or, or you know, or, or, or basically being seen as Islamophobic. And, and I just wonder whether, you know, what I'm saying is, is completely unprovable, but but I think it seems to me that that, that that mood, that concern does exist among, in big, in big news organisations particularly. All right, let's take a moment and then we're going to come back and hear from Kerry on Boris Johnson and the COVID inquiry. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn to Boris Johnson's, I was going to say, day in court, two days in front of the COVID inquiry. What did we learn? I want us to learn from the COVID inquiry that character matters as well as process. That I'm looking at Boris Johnson on the stand and thinking what I'm seeing in part is the tragedy of Boris Johnson and in part is the tragedy of all of us. That the tragedy of Boris Johnson is people have talked about his demeanour. That suddenly, you know, we see a man who is diligent, serious, has a strategy and is sticking to it. Um, we're seeing a very unfamiliar sort of Boris Johnson. He's, you know, he's put the work in and, and he's, sticking to, you know, he's sticking to his knitting. You mean for the inquiry? For the inquiry. Because it's about his reputation? Be- because it's his neck on the line. And, and, and the tragedy for all of us is that he's only prepared to do this because it's his neck on the line. He wasn't prepared to do it, any of those things, the, the hard work, the seriousness, the strategy, when it was our necks on the line because of this, because of this virus. And I think having looked at particularly this sort of run up to the second lockdown in sort of the autumn of 2020 that we did the podcast about this week, you simply cannot disentangle, as people are trying to do, the character of Boris Johnson particularly, but some people around him as well, from the way the COVID crisis was handled in this country. That, you know, our processes weren't perfect. There were mistakes made early on. We treated this too much like a, a flu pandemic and, and we got distracted by things like herd immunity early on and some of the scientific advice was not as strong as it could have been. But overwhelmingly, the thing that drove the UK government's response to the to the pandemic was Boris Johnson's character, his personal philosophy, which is so hard to disentangle from his political philosophy. And can I just then understand, because there are two readings of Boris Johnson that come out of the COVID inquiry so far. One is the trolley, keeps changing his minds, wonky wheel. And the other is the mayor of Jaws. I will stand up against the tide of popular opinion to do what's right for my city, town, society. I One is steadfast and strong, but mistaken. And the other one is flip-flopping, changed mind. What did we have? Which one was it? I think it was both. <laughs> and, and as a mix, that turned out to be so far from ideal. So everybody around him knew that in the end... He would change his mind because in the end, they could all see that the NHS was going to get overwhelmed and that he would not, nobody, no prime minister could stand by a, a sort of Lombardy situation un, unfold in this country. So everybody knew that in the end, the trolley was going to dock in the right place and we'd get our pound back. Mm-hmm. But but um, but the getting to that point cost us you know, Economically, it cost us lives, it cost our children's education, it cost... And which was worse, the delay in the lockdown, the first lockdown, February, March, or the delay in the September, the 43 days, September, October lockdown? Which was worse in terms of judgment and which was worse in terms of consequence? So I think the second, in both cases, the second lockdown was worse, which is why I think it's the most interesting, the most interesting sort of 
period of the, of the entire COVID crisis because we knew a lot. The data was really, really good in this country by the time of the second lockdown. And even then, we vest so much power in the Prime Minister that, that he alone could delay the decision to do the second lockdown by weeks and weeks, and which, which undoubtedly cost, no one could put a firm figure on it, but many, many thousands of lives. I mean, an unbelievable death toll because of one man's prevarication. Caroline, I know you have to get on your way. Before you go, will you just tell us what you've made of the COVID inquiry and whether or not there's anything positive or constructive to take from it? I, I, I hope there will be um, lessons that, that come out of it that we that we can learn. I mean, for example, just the way in which education was so overlooked. You know, why, why did we open pubs before we opened schools, for example? So I think certainly there are there are things we can learn from it. But but coming back to what Kerry was saying about the character of the Prime Minister, of course, I think that the inquiry has reinforced simply because it's reminded us all of the you know, just such crass and 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 insensitive approaches from him on everything from saying that COVID was the way of nature taking care of old people, uh, you know, calling long COVID just utter bollocks or whatever he said. You know, I mean, his judgment was wrong all, all the way through it. But I, I think where I would just push back a bit against, against Kerry and, and, and talking about Boris's character was that it was no surprise that he was going to be like that. When the Conservative Party installed Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, they knew what he was like, but they, you know, they 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 just decided that was a price worth paying to try to get re-elected and get Brexit over the line. But for months and months and months, that front bench stood alongside him. You, you know, they they were complicit with him. It took a very long time before people started to resign from Boris Johnson's cabinet. Jess, what do you think? I think there is an an element that this is cathartic, only in the sense of I think a lot of people, including families, have waited a long time for this week to actually see him. And while what he says may not be what they want to hear and may be political waffle, I think there is, whether it is more of a truth and reconciliation kind of tactic of just being able to see the person who you deem responsible and who is responsible for so many deaths to be actually questioned on it and pulled up on it and made to account for himself. I think there is something in that 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 shouldn't be underestimated. There's something cathartic in speed, isn't it? If you're Sweden and Australia, you've done your inquiry already and you've learnt, then mm. that's cathartic. All right, so this week's running order, Kerry, if you're not leading with COVID, you lead with I would October lead with, the 7th. I'd lead with October the 7th. Jess? I would lead with the COVID inquiry this week. I think COP is, is probably next week's story when we actually see what they come up with. I would lead on what we learnt from October the 7th. I, I think each day goes by that we don't have that story really, really matters. We can catch up on the on the foibles of Boris Johnson, but this, I think, really has, has big implications. I think we've all been catching up on those foibles for a while. <laughs> it, it, I think it's clear, at least to me, that COP is going to be a big story next week. There's a news management issue, which is trying to understand what the threshold is that means success. That's the problem at the moment, is the news reporting even down the running order. doesn't help you much with that. But I would then run Boris Johnson, the COVID inquiry, and I'd lead for the week on uh, the rapes and violence against women uh, on October the 7th. But I'd want that story in paragraphs two, three, and four to try to understand and hold to account those agencies and those campaign groups that are devoted to uh, the rights of women uh, and not in a way that's trying to manage the narrative, but just to understand the competing 
values and interests of those campaign groups as they try to make sense of what's happening in uh, Gaza, Israel and the Middle East. So October the 7th, Boris Johnson in front of COVID, COP, uh, and just to make sure Caroline's not too you know, disappointed in the predictability of the news. We'll come back to COP, no doubt, to lead next week. If you do have thoughts of what you reckon would be... Hang on, on. this just in, (laughs) otherwise known as Cat just in. By the way, I gave you such a big build-up, and we were like, oh no, she's not made it. (laughs) It's actually, it's not Westminster, it's TFL. I had to wait seven minutes for a tube. Oh, is that so bad? That's pretty bad. Talk to By the way, this feels like a first world problem. <laughs> yeah. Can I give you my theory? Yes. Nothing's going on. Is that right? So Westminster is very quiet today, um, which I think post-COVID, a lot of MPs go back on Thursdays when they used to go back on Fridays. So Thursdays is quite quiet anyway. <laughs> but It's Tuesday, the new Wednesday. I mean, what's happened to the working <laughs> I, week? I actually Westminster? don't know which day it is. So I'm quite, if you'd have told me it was Tuesday, I would have been like, Yeah, sure, sure, fine. The sort of obvious thing is letters of no confidence and and a confidence vote. But the concern from people who do want to get rid of Rishi Sunak, and there are several of those, is that um, if they don't do it in a coordinated way, if there isn't an alternative leader in the wings, then he wins a vote and he has this 12-month grace period, which means that he basically won't be challenged because there'll be an election in that in that period or at the end of that period. So can, can we just go through that slowly? <laughs> Sorry. So leadership challenge. So they need, for, it, it's the same old thing. A certain number of letters need to go into the 1922 committee. Yes, it's fewer than it was under Boris Johnson because lots of people have resigned and all been suspended. So it's 53 is the magic number now. And how close do you think the rebels, by which I'm thinking Suella Braverman, Robert Jenrick... The John Hayes, the, the 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 right. How many have they got? So it's not it's not clear yet um, how many letters have gone in. Obviously, you know the theory being that only um, Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee, actually knows how many letters are in at any one point. He, he's still the chair, even though he's stepping down. Yes, um, but uh, the sort of rough back of a fag packet estimates that people give is between 20 and 30. So it doesn't take that much to get to that number. And one of the concerns that right-wingers have is it gets to that number accidentally. And then you have a vote of no confidence before they're ready. And can, I said Jenrick and Braverman. Mm. Is the thinking that Suella Braverman is running or is she positioning for a run after the general election? The thinking has always been that she is positioning for a post-election tilt. Um, And also, by the way, that people don't think she would get it. Um, I think, to be honest, I think the kind of broad sense at the minute is paralysis. So the Rwanda vote that's coming down the line is not going to be treated as a confidence matter because... Frankly, they know that they might lose it. They might lose it. Um, And so technically, I suppose the best case scenario is that there's a rebellion and they try again or it gets through um, with a few people sort of showing their ankles. But, But, you know, you've got the One Nation Tories that are kind of desperately trying to keep things together 
holding their noses and probably voting for something that they really don't like. So can you explain that to me? That's the bit of it that I find the hardest to understand. You're a conservative who came in, let's say in 2010, where one of the pledges was a 0.7% commitment to international development. You had a view about Britain's place in the world. And just over a decade later, you're voting through legislation that falls short of pulling out of the European Convention on Human Rights only because Rwanda has said, if you do pull out of the ECHR, we're going to pull out of the scheme, i.e. Britain's position on human rights is being upheld by Paul Kagame, not by the British Prime Minister. Well, the interesting thing on that is that there is a suggestion uh, certainly a rumour, been denied by number 10, but but certainly a, a rumour around Westminster from various uh, wings that uh, it was a request, it came as a request from number 10 that Rwanda put that statement out or words to that effect. So that there layers was a upon little, layers. little <laughs> bit of, of, of sort of wiggle room and, you know, a sort of a, a something you can point to. But yes, I was having this exact conversation with someone earlier today about um, how it sort of just makes him, Rishi Sunak, look even weaker, that he can't say as a point of principle, I don't think it's right that we should mm. uh, break this. But he's using Kagami that as his... It's, it's just that they man. will collapse the deal. It, I mean, it's not... It doesn't make him look like a man of principle or power. Kerry, do you just think, you know, watch something else on TV, listen to something else on the radio, <laughs> buy a good novel? Yeah, yeah. I, by the way, I started reading that Catherine Rundell, John... Done book, which oh, is it's amazing. Brilliant. I yeah. love that book. And is that the way to handle all of this? It's just noise now. Uh, Let's the wait parties. for years and, and <laughs> see what we think. <laughs> no, no, not, not that. Let's wait a year or so until the general election. Yeah, this is these are the death throes of. I mean, I think I, I wouldn't say nothing's going on, but I do think nothing will happen. You know, I mean, I think or at least nothing will happen on purpose because I think you know you have to look at the, the Conservative Party's handling of the whole Rwanda thing and think it's as a piece of mismanagement. It's it's epic. Can I say, in a rather self-serving and uncool way, this is an argument for slow news. <laughs> yeah. Let's try and figure out what happened on October the 7th. Let's see what we've learned from the COVID inquiry. Let's understand what's happening in COP. And then, Kat, if you'll be good enough, come back next week when we've worked <laughs> out whether it's actually happened. <laughs> so on that, thank you very much, Kat Nealon, for whistling in. Our political editor is here, Kerry Thomas. Caroline Lucas, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you making the time. Uh, Jess Winch, thank you for listening in. And as I said, if you've got views on the stories we really should be covering, do email us or send a voicemail. We love that too. Newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. So with that, thank you for listening to the news meeting. Tomorrow, if you get the chance, do listen out for our great political podcast, Trendy. John Curtis, I think I should call him Sir John Curtis, the great pollster, and Rachel Wolfe, uh, the policy expert, actually the woman who more or less wrote the last Conservative Party manifesto, put their heads together to try and understand the big trends in society and how they meet our politics. They're talking about religion, faith, and how that plays out in the cultural wars. So please do listen out for that. For now, I leave you with the sad news that the poet Benjamin Zephaniah has died at the age of 65. His poetry spoke to history and colonialism and racism and capitalism. But here he is in 1991 reading his poem Money 
on a sunny day in the middle of Newcastle city centre. Money makes a dream become reality. Money makes real life like a fantasy. Money has a habit of going to the head. I have some for a rainy day underneath my bed. Money problems make it hard to relax. Money makes it difficult to get down to the facts. Money makes you worship vanity and lies. Money is a drug with legal eyes. Money made me go out and rob. Then it made me go looking for a job. Money made the nurse and the doctor immigrate. Money buys friends you love to hear. Money made slavery seem all right. Money brought the Bible and the Bible shone the light. Victory to the penniless at grassroots sources. We come to mash down market forces. We come to mash down market forces. Tortoise. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.